Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today and for the second podcast as part of the journal's Summer Disruption Discussed series. I'm Kalista, the chairperson of the Broad Street Humanities Review, and I'm delighted to be joined by fellow committee member, Anika, who is our publicity officer. Today, we have with us a very esteemed guest, Dr. Farida Zaman, Associate Professor of the History of Britain and the World at the University of Oxford and Tutor of Modern History at Somerville College. She is a historian of the modern British Empire, South Asia and global intellectual history. I had classes with our last trinity and they were nothing short of insightful and amazing. So now, before we begin, I hope to briefly introduce the Broad Street Humanities Review and what we do. Launched in 2019, we're Oxford's very first student-run humanities journal, and we aim to invigorate interdisciplinary academic writing in our community. Our summer journal, centered on the theme Disruption, will be released in mid-September. And in the lead up to the launch, we are hosting a specialist speaker series, Disruption Discussed, that explores the theme from different disciplinary angles. Last Monday, we had the pleasure of hosting Dr. Andrew Edwards, where we explored the global history of capitalism. And today, Farida will weigh in on the theme, Disruption, from a historical perspective, sharing her insights on memory and nostalgia. After the live event today, the podcast recording will be uploaded on our website and Facebook page for your listening pleasure. Anika, would you like to briefly introduce yourself now? Sure. Um, so hi everyone, I'm Anika, um, I'm a law student at Regents Park College and as Calista said, I'm a publicity officer for BSHR. Um, I'm really excited to be here hosting uh, Dr. Farida Zaman, such an amazing guest speaker and I hope you're all looking forward to the event, so thanks for coming. Great. Uh, Farida, we'd like to do the same and talk a bit about your academic background and research interests. Oh, okay. Um, thank you for inviting me um, here and I look forward to kind of talking with you and with all the other participants about this really interesting theme um, today. My background, I've kind of always been a historian. I have a sort of quite boring background as it were. I did um, a history undergraduate degree at Cambridge. Um, I then did an MPhil in historical studies at Cambridge. Then I did a PhD in history at Cambridge. Um, where that was where really I got really interested in kind of world history and also the history of kind of ideas in the non-European world. Um, so that's where I sort of situate myself as, as a researcher. Um, in between Cambridge and Oxford, I was at the University of Chicago for three years, which was really um, interesting experience, not least because um, I found that the kind of history that I do, just kind of looking predominantly at South Asia, was done much more from an area studies perspective. So from, they have a South Asian languages and civilizations sort of department um, and the sort of the historians were doing something sort of slightly different. So that was a really interesting perspective. But now I'm back um, in the UK. I'm in I'm at Oxford. I have a slightly strange title of historian of Britain and the world, um, which brings up all sorts of questions about Britain's relationship to the world and what that and is is doing. Um, but yeah, I've been here for two years and I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, we are very excited to have you here as well. So um, just a quick note that we'll do a Q&A in about 40 minutes time. So if the audience has any questions for Dr. Farida, please submit any questions that you have for us in the Zoom chat. And please do indicate whether you'd like us to read it out for you or if you'd like to do it yourself, in which case you'll be able to unmute yourself and turn your camera on after our queue. So our first question for Farida is, 
what qualifies as a disruptive event in history. So nowadays, the term disruption is very frequently used in the business and tech world. But if we were to look at the dictionary definition of disruption, which points to disturbance um, as a form of interruption to an event, activity or process, and apply it to history as a discipline which studies the past and the multitude of changes within it, what kind of event uh, would you say is large or dramatic enough to count as a rupture in history or say break from the past? That's such an interesting question. And I suppose automatically we start thinking about um, events, maybe sort of rebellions or wars or, or that kind of sort of cataclysmic event. But I have to say, as a historian, when I hear the word disruption, and, and I'm thinking a lot about sort of methodological disruption, I think. Thinking about when we have sort of significant um, shifts in the ways in which we even kind of think about the past or the ways that we conceptualize the past. So whether it's the sort of the so-called post-colonial turn or the, uh, or the turn to kind of gender histories and, and queer histories or kind of thinking about um, history from below, those kinds of moments are disruptive to the entire historical profession. I mean, they don't necessarily influence the entire historical profession, but they can potentially actually change the way we, we think about the entire sort of gamut of the past, as it were. So I think for me, the, the, the moment of disruption that is kind of most interesting and most productive is that kind of moment in the, in the 60s and 70s when the kind of the, the history from below the that scholars associated with the Bolton School and then the kind of the, um, the, the post-colonial turn that kind of originated very much in sort of literature and, and cultural studies came to really change the way we even define history uh, to start with. Yeah, I find it very interesting as well because in, in our course um, in Trinity as well, when we touched about, um, when we survey the history of Britain um, in, in, in between the two world wars, we also touched on the histories of its colonies or, or its empire um, back then. And I think that it's really interesting to survey history from different angles as well. So not only we survey um, different disciplines, but also within each discipline, there are different lenses on which we can apply to actually understand our history and better understand our past as well. So um, in that case, what about um, memorialization? So what do you think is the role and value of memorialization? in relation to historical ruptures, uh, for instance, in a nation's history or, or in a continent's history in that sense. And uh, for instance, if we take a look into world wars or revolutions, so what, what do you think is the role of memorialization in this case? Um, I suppose the question that always comes to my mind and lots of other historians, I think, is what is it that we're choosing to memorialize? I think that question sort of has to be at the forefront of any discussion of memorialization. Um, and then putting it in conversation with this idea of disruption and rupture is quite interesting because if we look around us in Britain today or wherever you know people might be at, at this precise moment, um, the things that societies tend to memorialize, the things that they tend to erect statues to or monuments or plaques or, or what, what have you, um, they tend to be obviously quite sort of um, significant 
events in that nation's past. So in Britain, for instance, um, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of memorials, uh, war memorials, right? And most of them are commemorate, some of them commemorate sort of the war dead in general, and many of them commemorate the First World War and Second World War um, dead in particular. And so that makes a lot of sense, right? That the First World War and the Second World War were really important to Britain's history, particularly in the 20th century, of course. Um, but it really, for, for many people, these sort of moments in Britain's kind of modern past. But when we think about it, particularly coming to it as an imperial historian, it's interesting that those kinds of, it's those moments of cataclysm, be they on a world scale, that are actually being um, memorialised here. So in the British imperial context, there are lots of other kinds of events that we might have expected to see um, memorialised. For instance, um, the 1857 mutiny in India or the Jallian Wallabag massacre in 1919, both of those moments were really important for kind of creating these moments of imperial crisis for Britain. And um, they are well memorialized in India itself. They're really important to kind of um, post-colonial, um, I guess, nation state building, as it were. But you would you don't find any memorials to those events in Britain. And again, it's not because it was irrelevant to Britain. They were actually really kind of important moments of imperial crisis, as I say, for the British Empire, but we just don't see memorials to them here. Another example might be the 1865 Morant Bay Rebellion in Jamaica. Um, that rebellion, I doubt very many people in Britain know about this event, but it's actually a really important, it was a really important um, event that has ended up becoming quite important to sort of, um, I guess, nation building in Jamaica and kind of post-colonial Jamaica. But again, we don't find memorials to those kinds of events here. We might occasionally find the grave of a kind of um, a colonial civil servant or something that mentioned, or an army officer that mentions their role in pacifying those rebellions or whatever. But these what were, in fact, really disruptive events at the time don't receive any kind of memorialization here, right? So we might say that what these memorials serve to do is um, locate and um, specify very particular kinds of disruption. Disruption or kind of moments of um, rupture that actually reveal some underlying virtue. So they reveal the kind of underlying virtue of, of Britain or the British Empire, they reveal the heroism or um, they reveal the kind of bravery of, of, of British people or, um, or what have you. Now, I was thinking about this question a little bit earlier and, and I was thinking, well, so the memorials that we have to uh, revolutions and failed rebellions in the post-colonial world, for instance, does that mean that we have to take those memorials to be um, somehow sort of superior than the ones that we have here? And I don't think that's always the case, right? So memorialization is always somewhat selective and it's always somewhat partial, it's sort of picking and choosing from history. And so even memorials to, for instance, 1857 or 1819 or 1865, those kind memorials to those events can be just as selective. And sometimes they can be put to um, sort of the can be put to use in building a kind of a, a nationalist agenda or a particular kind of narrow version of the past that we might also find sort of somewhat problematic. So I think, um, you know, that's a really long-winded way of saying that the relationship between rupture and memorialization is always kind of tricky because in the moment of memorializing, you're taking that moment of rupture and giving it a new meaning that sort of, that sort of elevates that moment of rupture and turns it into something much more 
um, much more part of a kind of of a narrative rather than rupture itself. It sort of unruptures rupture by solidifying it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I find that um, I find I find your insights really interesting, and I would just like to build on this statement that you said that memorialization is kind of elevating ruptures and revealing a, a sort of trait in it, trait within it, um, and uh, repackaging it to reveal the virtue within it. So in that case, um, could I say that memorialization is inherently commemorative or celebra uh, celebratory in that sense? Uh, do you think that uh, memorialization is kind of aestheticizing pain and pain or loss or trauma? Or do you think there's more to memorialization that we can unpack there? I think you're right. I think hitherto most memorials, I mean, and I take it that we're talking mainly about sort of statues and um, cenotaphs and those kinds of things. I think you're right. Hitherto memorials have been largely about commemorating and about signaling certain kinds of um, principles and virtues in a kind of a nation's past, as it were. So whether it's sort of um, celebrating a kind of um, heroism in war or heroism even in the in, in Britain of course we have this um, there's a sort of good fortune as it were in that Britain sort of won both world wars and was on the winning side of both world wars and so memorials have a sort of they might have a sort of a mournful quality about life that was lost but they can ultimately sort of um, it can ultimately serve a sort of a, a, a bigger narrative but we think about sort of countries that were defeated in the First and the Second World War, so a country like Germany, memorialization obviously has very different sort of implications in that context. Um, and the ability to kind of memorialize German soldiers, for instance, is not particularly clear. It's not clear how you memorialize Nazi soldiers, for instance, right? Um, yeah, so I think that aestheticization also has a sort of, um, there's a kind of a rich literature about this actually, in terms of, I mean, people have written, for instance, about kind of photography and war and how the ability to kind of visualize what it is that, um, visualize suffering is really important to kind of building empathy and kind of um, the ability to kind of see others as sort of others and as, as kind of people. Um, and we might think that nations generally aren't putting up memorials and commemorating um, otherness, as it were. They're not commemorating those who were defeated, those who were colonized, those who were enslaved, those who they didn't see, uh, who they kind of fundamentally just saw as other in some, in some particular way. Um, so then the question of the aestheticization is tricky because on the one hand, um, I understand you're kind of, I think you're asking about whether there's a sort of, um, I don't know, there's almost a kind of exploitative potential of aestheticizing kind of human trauma and loss and whatnot. But on the other hand, if we're talking about people who were um, people or kind of histories that were never regarded as kind of part of the national script to begin with, um, or worth remembering, to that extent, some form of aestheticization might be necessary in order to even sort of Bring them within kind of the realm of, of meaning, whether it's sort of through kind of visual images or, or, um, or you know, the built environment in some way. 
Yeah, thank you for that. I think earlier in your in your response, you talked a bit about um, the visualization of trauma of of loss um, in the process of memorialization, and you talked a bit about statues and photography as well. So I think it would be really interesting to now go into um, visual culture and if there are other mediums of memorializing past events, uh, for instance, oral history or through uh, written literature or um, other mediums of of remembering the past. Do you think that there are certain mediums that are necessarily more permanent or, or more effective in, in the process of memorialization? And, and if so, what are they? Um, I don't know, really. I mean, if you think about your own, the way in which you inhabit a space such as Oxford when you're in the city, it's a, it's a city that's suffused with history in lots of ways, right? In the buildings, um, the kind of the, the, archi the diverse architectural forms, in statuary, in plaques, in street names, in museums and galleries. And in all sorts of ways, there's a sort of an abundance of history all around us. And a lot of that history is doing some form of memorialization, right? Um, not always explicitly, but, but often it is. And whether, do we actually walk around the city constantly being kind of prodded to remember things by the built environment or do we to a certain extent let a lot of it kind of wash over us and notice maybe bits and bobs but on the whole actually not um not kind of actively participate in the kind of history making that those objects were intended to do or intended to be sort of really a part of um, that's not to say that they can't be effective. I think they can be really effective. And I think we've seen with the, with, you know, the past few years of the kind of Roads Must Fall campaign that they can be really kind of symbolically important, even if they aren't sort of materially seemingly very significant. I mean, it's not clear how many people would have walked down. The average person might not have walked past Oriole and noticed the word statue, but for those who know it's there, it's incredibly kind of painful and um, symbolically kind of important and significant that it's there in the first place. So, um, so I'm not saying that sort of the built environment isn't effective. I think it's really, it is, it can potentially be really effective, but in a world, in the world that we occupy now where we're kind of bombarded with, um, different kinds of media, I think there are other ways in which we sort of imbibe certain kinds of historical narratives. So, um, you know, TV is TV and film is a really kind of um, it's a really obvious example when we're watching um, probably any kind of TV, but really particularly things like period dramas or if we're watching a kind of royal wedding on the TV, we're really being exposed to a certain kind of story about um, the British past or Britain's relationship to the rest of the world. Um, and without really even kind of consciously thinking that we're sort of consuming history or being exposed to history, we're, we're being presented by those kinds of narratives. I mean, the question of effectiveness, which you posed, suggests that maybe there are, for those of us who are interested in bringing different kinds of histories to light, are there sort of particularly, are there ways, more effective ways of doing so than others? And um, I don't know, I, th I think there probably could be. I think there, there are sort of disruptive ways of, of doing that. I mean, one interesting Oxford-based example is um, the, uh, what's it called? Uncomfortable Oxford, which is a sort of a walking tour um, that draws attention to the sort of the, the hidden ways in which empire impacted Oxford and has shaped the kind of built environment of Oxford. And that's a really interesting and I guess disruptive way of 
um, remembering because it takes what's already there and what's there to produce a certain kind of history and sort of tries to flip it on its head or look kind of beneath the surface and reveal a different history. And so to my mind, that's a really effective strategy because it takes what's already there and gets people to look at it differently. So it's sort of not, um, just as it's sort of important to put new kinds of statues up and new monuments and new plaques, it also takes what's already there and fundamentally sort of unsettles it and makes us sort of uncomfortable about the memorials that already exist. So to my mind, that's a really effective strategy. And I think, um, I mean, there are kind of legions of others, sort of literature, plays, music, I mean, the, the stuff all around us, I think, can, can serve as a really effective vehicle. Wow, um, that's really interesting. And I didn't know about the um, the Oxford tour that you mentioned. So I think I have to see if I can check that out when we get back. Um, so in response to that, I'd like to ask you about um, a quote in one of your articles um, where you stated that memory conceals as much as it report as it purports to reveal. Um, I thought that was quite thought provoking. So would you like to expand on that and sort of explain what you mean by that? Yeah, this is from something that I wrote a few years ago where um, I was looking into a period of revolutionary um, ferment in India. So during the First World War um, in 1916, there was this moment of kind of an aborted revolution called the Silk Letters Conspiracy. And um, I was looking through the kind of colonial files as you do in the kind of in the British Library. I was looking through all the kind of colonial files about this incident, and there was this one name that kept reoccurring. Um, his name was Abul Kalam Azad, and he was at the time sort of a journalist, kind of slash theologian. Um, and he seemed to be, or at least from the British perspective, he seemed to be kind of involved in anything nefarious that was going on at the time. So anything conspiratorial or revolutionary or anti-colonial, he seemed to have a sort of a finger in that pie, um, which was really interesting. I mean, he can't necessarily always, we, we never assume really that the colonial archive is true or is presenting us a sort of a true version of the past or the, or the people that it's talking about. But it seemed a rather kind of compelling um, litany of events that he was supposed to be sort of um, caught up in. But then, I thought about this figure as one who, in fact, went on to become really important to the Indian nationalist, um, to the Indian nationalist story. And in post-colonial India, he was he was sort of one of these key Muslim figures that chose not to go to Pakistan, but he stayed in India, and he helped in that kind of formative moment of nation building, that sort of first decade of nation building. Um, and he's remembered as this sort of very sage, wise, very sort of level-headed figure. Um, and I couldn't quite sort of square that figure with this, you know, this revolutionary figure in the archives. And I went to his autobiography and I read, you know, the passages that were relevant to that kind of earlier period. And he just sort of skims past it altogether. He doesn't really talk about it at all. And what he does say about himself in that kind of in that young period is is very much sort of in keeping with his later trajectory, as it were. And so then I was placed in a sort of slightly odd um, position where usually, um, you know, usually people sort of talk up their radical and revolutionary history. But in this case, we had a figure who was in some way sort of suppressing his own revolutionary past, right? He was making himself much more, um, much more sort of middle of the road as it were, as far as nationalism was concerned by the mid 20th century and suppressing this quite radical, quite interesting history. And so in that context, it seemed like the colonial archive was producing a much more 
interesting and radical revolutionary anti-colonial figure than the person than the figure themselves would like us to remember um, and that really indicates just one of the ways in which kind of autobiography is this very um, complicated resource for historians to use. Obviously we use autobiographies as we use diaries and, and whatnot to um, investigate how subjects thought of, think about their own past and about their own actions and their own motivations and whatnot. But historical actors often hide things. Um, sometimes they do it consciously, sometimes they do it unconsciously and they have a, um, you know, there are myriad reasons why anybody would do that. Um, in the context of the figure that I was looking at, it was quite clear that by the 1940s and 50s, he didn't want to be remembered as someone who had any involvement with any kind of violent activity in the 1910s. He wanted to be remembered as someone who was an ally of Gandhian non-violence and who was a nation builder and state builder. Um, he didn't want to be associated with that past. And so that provided me with a kind of a way of thinking about what kinds of um, histories the post-colonial nation sort of allows people to, to bear, right? That um, in some ways, difference and kind of different strategies, strategies that were counter to that sort of Gandhian mode just didn't seem fitting anymore to him or he didn't seem like he could, it didn't seem like he could talk about that anymore by the 1940s and 50s. So, um, so to, to that extent, you know, that memory um, the, the memory that, that's been presented in his autobiography is really actually concealing um, more than it really reveals. And in this sort of almost quite, it's not, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a rare con context, but it's kind of unusual that the colonial archive is much more sort of interesting than the life that the revolutionary themselves would, would have us remember. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, I find it very interesting, um, especially with um, the subjectivity of testimony and how people would like their legacies to be remembered. And I think uh, leading on from that, I think that it's exceptionally interesting um, that in, in our course in 1919, Remaking the World, we actually learned about Woodrow Wilson as, as a figure and how I've remembered him from, uh, from high school and, and my history course was that he was the leading figure of Wilson, uh, Wilsonianism and how he actually championed self-determination for, for the people after the war. And he's the, he envisions a whole new world of democracy and stuff like that. But then when we dive, dive in a bit deeper, uh, we kind of learned that he was the one who actually blocked uh, Japan's bid for the race equality clause uh, in the League of Nations and is also um, a segregationist in his own country as well. So I think um, there is definitely the element of uh, selective memory here, what we choose to amplify and what we choose to uh, kind of uh, hide um, beneath beneath the cover um, and, and not actually exposed for, for public viewing as well. So thank you for that. That was really meaningful. And I think um, this also brings in the, the concept of power, as some authors in the literature argue that memory and the construction of it is inextricably related to power, as those in power tends to wield a means to determine what we remember, but also what we forget. So do you think that this notion is true and can it be challenged with the rise of other modes of history, like what you've mentioned, like people's history or history from below, uh, where these histories rise up to challenge the dominant narrative, for instance, which might often be constructed by the state or figures in power? Yeah, that's such an excellent question. I think there are 
um, there are sort of two branches or two broadly kind of two kinds of history that we're talking about here. In one instance, there's a kind of history where we actually have records and um, you know sources that attest to a very complicate, complicated version of the past, and yet because precisely in the way that you say, because sort of you know history is written by the victors, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, we only kind of remember, quote unquote, remember a particular version. And so the um, example that comes to mind immediately is sort of the history of Britain's involvement in the slave trade and in abolition. So even kind of, you know, non-historians in this conversation, I'm sure will be very familiar with this kind of a fact that, you know, Britain abolished one of, the, one of the first European countries, or as it's remembered often the first European country, but that's not technically true, um, Britain abolished the slave trade um, and then it spent, you know, decades um, on the high seas trying to eradicate slavery in the world. Um, but we have we don't need to kind of go to unusual or kind of new sources to find, um, you know, find out more about the fact that Britain was involved in the slave trade from the very beginnings, you know, an important part in establishing the slave trade and um, profited enormously from it in the period that it participated in the slave trade. And then it continued to profit from it after the end of the slave trade and after um, um, abolition in sort of lots of complicated ways. So, um, you know, it continued to, uh, benefit from the fact that the slave trade had basically produced um, profits that were really important to Britain's kind of early industrialization, etc. Right. So in that instance, it's not so much about finding new sources as about you know the the historians who are you know constantly sort of trying to insist upon this much more kind of complex and nuanced history. Um, fighting against or coming up against the sort of really stubborn strain in sort of Britain's kind of public discourse about sort of Britain being the sort of the hero of the slave trade, the kind of the, the abolitioning state, the kind of the, the Royal Navy as this as, as a sort of crusading force. Um, so that's what that's one kind of um, historical amnesia that, that we're fighting. The other kind, I think, and, um, and maybe also the, the more kind of methodolo methodologically interesting kind, is the kinds of histories where actually we don't have a lot of recorded evidence from um, those who, um, you know, those who were either the kind of the victims or the so-called sort of losers of history, as it were. You know, if history is written by the vic victors and, you know, where, where are the losers? How do we find out more about them? And here the kind of the methodological intervention of, um, you know, I, I mentioned um, earlier the kind of the historians who were interested in reconstructing history from below and, and, and post-colonial post -colonial approaches, very much kind of looking towards how do we find these other voices? And often, it took you know interesting interesting paths whether we're looking at sort of um memories encoded in folk songs and, and sort of ballads and, and whatnot or in kind of rituals and customs or um literature in music um there were sort of there is i think an on ongoing effort to try and find ways of um, getting at sort of people's understanding of the past without having sort of lots of historical texts at the ready. Um, the other thing you can do is sort of take the historical texts that already exist. So in the colonial context, often, you know, we do tend to have like an abundance of colonial archives and sort of read them differently, sort of read them, um, you know, it's sometimes described as read them against the grain. So you're reading what we already have for purposes that it wasn't sort of intended for. 
as it were. So if you have the kind of um, a classic example is that if you read a colonial account of a, um, a rebellion or something, you get lots of information about how um, the colonial authorities policed that rebellion, how they put it down and how they sort of fought against it. But if you're looking for the perspective of the rebel, you can read that very same document and try and sort of find, it, it takes a lot of work and you, you're never really quite sure that you're producing anything um, like a sort of a reconstructed agency. Um, but you can try and sort of take what is recorded about the rebel in that document and try and reconstitute some version of the rebel's perspective from that document that really isn't at all seeking to tell you anything about the rebel, as it were. Um, yeah. Wow. Do you so, have any, um, sorry, I was just going to ask if you had any, um, any sort of sources or things that you were particularly thinking of in, in asking the question. Um, actually, I was reading a bit about uh, truth commissions in Latin America and, and how um, these truth commissions that have sprung up in the 1980s, uh, 1970s and 80s have tried to kind of rewrite history and actually take a more critical critical eye to surveying the human rights abuses that have occurred in those countries at that point in time. So I was just wondering if um, memory um, or the construction of it at least really truly lies in the hands of the powerful or if, you know, um, as time passes with the democ democratization of the sources um, and, and serving mm. a more diverse range of histories, can we um, start to actually construct a more rounded, a more critical um, view of, of the history and of the past that, that has occurred? So I think, yeah, thank you very much for that really insightful sharing. Yep, Anika, do you have a question for, for, for Ruda? Um, oh yeah, thanks. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, because some people um, might argue that the use of iconography in memorialising the British Empire has contributed to Britain's historical amnesia, um, preventing it from confronting its colonial past. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to ask what you thought of the aestheticization of trauma and, and loss, and if you think um, it's potentially problematic. Um. I'm, so, did you have an example of, of a sort of a problematic sort of memorialization of the empire that you were thinking about? Um, I actually think that, um, for instance, statues or, or memorials in that sense. So, basically, you know, glorifying, um, for instance, um, Britain's victories in, in the two world wars which which it indeed won but actually on on the back and the blood of many uh soldiers uh whom mm -hmm. they recruited from the middle east or, or from india in that sense and presenting a rather um iconographic um image of their victories kind of obscure the suffering and and the um loss that, that they have experienced in the past and if it's kind of whitewashing um, their history. So I would just like to ask your opinion mm. on that matter. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good example. Anika, did you have one that you were thinking about? Um, I guess Calista sort of um, was able to <laughs> articulate yeah, what I was thinking. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there is, I'm going to sort of probably annoy lots of um, kind of art historians here by suggesting that 
To a certain extent, when we put up memorials in public spaces, the aesthetic quality of it, ha at least it has been more important often than its sort of historical truth, uh, truthfulness, as it were. Um, the kind of heyday, so many of the publics, you know, that so many of the statues and memorials that you see in Britain today were erected in that kind of late Victorian period. And they very much reflect the kind of the aesthetics of that period. And we happen to, I think, because it's sort of, we, we've kind of grown to be accustomed to it. We tend to think it's quite nice. We kind, we kind of associate it with what civic architecture looks like. And I, again, I know I'm taking a very sort of Britain-centric perspective and things will differ across the world wherever you know, people happen to be. But in Britain, at least, the kind of the aesthetics of Victorian memorialization have become sort of the norm. It's what you expect statues to look like and you public squares and gardens and the railings around them and, and all that stuff like it looks like a memorial to us because it's cloaked in that sort of um, in that aesthetic um, in the after the Second World War I think you know there was um, another kind of a big push towards memorialization and we saw sort of a slightly more maybe kind of modernist take as it as it were and kind of much more sort of um, it's more maybe kind of experimentation with form and particularly in places, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, how, how, how does Germany go about memorializing the Second World War, for instance, or if you look at sort of memorials to the Holocaust, they've taken a very sort of architecturally or sort of um, quite sort of visually quite different path to that, which you see in sort of places like Britain and France. Um, so some degree of aesthetics, I think it's always going to be um, pertinent when you put up objects that are supposed to be, you know, permanent or semi-permanent in our public spaces, right? And people don't agree, people don't always think the same, you know, statue or the same, um, you know, bust or the same monument is, um, you know, attractive. And for some reason, we've developed this weird sort of, I want to say complacency, but this comfortableness with the products of Victorian memorialization that we don't um, that we don't somehow extend to other forms of sort of experimentation. So I, um, I quite agree that what we often see around us in public spaces now is a very sort of sanitized, aestheticized um, version of the past. The fact that most of the, most of the memorials that we see, or a lot of the memorials that we see are uh, memorializing war makes the, the contrast even more sort of striking, as I think you're suggesting, Kalista, because they are incredibly messy and complicated and bloody events. And what we see actually in the public spaces around us are very sort of clean, tidy, um, pure monuments. As they were and so would a much more um would a would a monument that was attesting to that messiness to violence to um kind of bloodshed would that need to take a kind of a different kind of form would that be um fetishizing violence and would it be you know could you avoid for instance can you really create a, a monument to slavery without somehow reinscribing the kind of the commodification of the black body for instance you know how do we actually create much more complicated monuments without participating in some sort of historical violence as it were yep. um i don't think it's really easy happily no one's asking me for designs for Public monuments, but um, it's it's um, it's certainly really complicated. Yeah, I definitely agree, and I think that um, with memorialization, I think 
a related concept to this is also the thing about nostalgia, where we not only memorialize the past, but there is an active longing uh, for the past. And I think that you discuss this concept really insightfully in your article about the Indian Rebellion of 1857, where you talked about um, how the Muslims' nostalgia for uh, or cultural longing for Islam's past greatness was a problematic particularity um, in the scheme of Indian territorial nativism. And in, in this case in particular, nostalgia was portrayed as something pathological, as a cause and symptom of what I quote, a fatal Muslim backwardness, where they are portrayed to be hostages of their past. And... Mm-hmm. This acts as evidence of the fact that Muslims in India were out of place and out of time with their nation. So do you think that this is actually a fair statement? And do you think that nostalgia is essentially um, anti-modern? Or do you think that it is actually complementary with modernity in, in, in one way or another? Yeah, thanks for that. Um... So I suppose the first thing to say is that when we use the word nostalgia now in this kind of conversation, we might immediately think of nostalgia as a sort of romantic thing, right? This sort of romantic longing for the past and being sort of slightly wistful for the way things were, et cetera, et cetera. It seems to be sort of, it's quite a sort of pleasant um, affliction, as it were. It's a sort of a nice mode to being, whether you're thinking about, you know, things from your childhood or things from you know, the nation's past, imagining how great it used to be at some past point. Um, it's it's generally going to seem as kind of romantic guys, right? But nostalgia actually has this really, as a concept, it has this really um, fascinating past. So you first see it sort of emerge around the kind of 17th century in Europe. Um, And it was actually a kind of a medical condition, nostalgia. So nostalgia referred to that phenomenon when people were far away from home and they had this sort of chronic homesickness and it produced this sort of almost debilitating effect on people. And so physicians diagnosed this. They diagnosed people with a condition called nostalgia. um, And the, um, the cure was often to send that person home, which seems sort of easy enough, right? Um, and that continued happening for, for centuries, actually, um, well into the 19th century as um, soldiers, particularly because they're often fighting far away from home, soldiers were often kind of diagnosed with nostalgia. Um, at some point, I mean, the historian Thomas Dodman, who works on French Algeria, writes about this really um, interestingly. So he says, or I suppose the French colonial empire more generally, um, he writes about how in the French context, what happens is that once you've got French soldiers in places where there's a lot of cultural and racial mixing, nostalgia shifts meaning and it stops meaning that, you know, you're, you've got this sort of fatal homesickness, but it ends up becoming this actually kind of a good sign. It's a good sign that you miss France and that you don't like being where you are that you want to go home. Um, And so nostalgia starts taking on these kind of quite romantic um, meanings that that we associate with it now. What does happen, he argues, though, is that nostalgia keeps being identified as a pathological, as a medical condition amongst um, colonial sort of black African troops. Um, So it continues, the very last troops, I think, that are diagnosed with uh, nostalgia as a medical condition are um, uh, African troops in the First World War. So French African troops in the First World War. Now, I find this sort of interest, the, the kind of the fact that nostalgia has these pathological roots quite interesting in the Indian context, because as you say in your kind of um, summary of my article, I'm quite interested in the way in which Muslims, who are this very large but minority of population in India, are written about within the kind of 
script of the nation. And as you say, there is this sort of indelible backwardness that seems to kind of plague Muslims. They're seen as having not sort of really participated in colonial modernity, having sort of held on to this sense that they, you know, they have this like glorious past, you know, and the Mughals and, and, and whatnot, and then that's been lost and that sort of, it hobbled them from ever being able to kind of participate in colonial modernity. Um, and my own kind of um, research in this suggests that actually there is a lot of talking about the past in Muslim politics at this time, but being kind of looking to the past does not necessarily imply this sort of, um, that you're sort of stuck in the past. Um, there's, um, there's a way of kind of using the past as a spur to, um, to kind of progressing and developing in the future. So uh, we might talk about this as a sort of the reflective mode of nostalgia, where you look to the past, but in a way to not necessarily kind of learn lessons, but actually to sort of kind of pause and reflect and, and think about where you want to sort of be, where you want to go as a kind of a nation, as a community, as a society or whatnot. And I think that could be quite instructive for Britain now, actually, that, you know, there is a kind of nostalgia where we might be like, oh, the glories of the past, if only we could be back to the high, you know, the high age of kind of British imperialism when, you know, Britain ruled, um, you know, a quarter of the globe or what have you. There can be that kind of nostalgia, which I don't think is particularly helpful for anybody. Um, and that has a lot of sort of violence inbuilt in it. Um, but there's another kind of nostalgia, kind of reflective nostalgia, where one might actually look to the past and try and actually kind of, kind of wrestle with it and think about its implications for the present and the future, um, not just sort of glorify and commemorate, but actually, you know, look for moments of, as you, you know, as you were saying, sort of moments of disruption and kind of looking for complexity in that part. So I think that can be a, a productive form of nostalgia. Yeah, thank you so much for, for the very useful distinction between restorative nostalgia and reflective nostalgia. I think these con concepts are really useful for us moving forward. And we have a question from the audience, which I think ties in perfectly with your discussion earlier. Um, and it is about how much does memorialization, at least in Britain, have more to do with nation building and cementing a certain national identity rather than representing historical truth? I mean, I think it has everything to do with it. You know, we've already been saying that um, why choose to memorialize anything? Why choose to commemorate anything? If memory is select, you know, selective, then commemoration is even more selective, right? There are any number of things that have happened in the past, a sort of overwhelming abundance of history. Why pick any any event in particular to build a statue to or erect a plaque to? I think we we necessarily pick and choose. Um, Memorialisation does does exactly that. And the question is is really about you know what purpose that memorialisation serves. And and it makes it makes so much sense that memorialisation is really about producing certain kinds of narratives and histories that people can rally around as it were so if we go back to this you know the the fact that the victoria the late victorian age is this heyday of of um memorialization of kind of statue erecting and whatnot i mean it makes sense you know it's a period in which you know the british empire is at its sort of it's not yet at its greatest extent but it's 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 pretty it's pretty huge it's pretty, pretty much getting there um but there is a little bit of a kind of um anxiety about sort of various colonial conflicts like the Boer war etc and there's a little bit of kind of uncertainty about what's happening um a little bit of kind of imperial doubt is creeping in and so that that um that spate of memorialization can be linked quite nicely actually to 
to um, to that moment of anxiety. I mean, it's not. I don't want to kind of over overstate that sort of anxiety. I mean, at the time when you know we've we've all been, um, I think, transfixed by the images of Edward Colston's statue coming down in, in Bristol a couple of months ago. I mean, at the time that Edward Colston's statue was erected, it was kind of centuries after he was involved in the slave trade, but it was erected at the, at a moment of arguable, arguably kind of. Um, imperial anxiety. At the same time, it was also a time when British power in southern Africa was expanding rapidly and in Africa in general, actually. So there are ways in which we might read memorials both as telling us something about the, the contemporary moment and the contemporary politics in which it was erected, and also the kind of um, the purposes to which to which that kind of um, those the establishment of those um, memorials are, are intended to sort of serve. Yeah. Yep. Thank you so much for that. And I think um, this brings me to one of our um, last few questions um, about the study of history, because I think that. Um, the study of history is very closely intertwined with um, the concept of memory, where we selectively um, kind of capture some moments moments in history, and there are different senses of making sense of history as well. And so do you think the study of history as an academic discipline has evolved over the centuries? And uh, with what you've mentioned, with the um, popular popularization of gender history, uh, people's history, um, and all these different lenses, and how do you think um, post-colonial studies in particular has influenced the historiography surrounding British imperialism and colonialism? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's a big question to end on. Um, I, I think, you know, it's clear that the historical discipline has shifted um, tremendously in, in, in the last few decades. I mean, history as an academic discipline is really not that old. It doesn't really, it's obviously people have had ways of engaging with the past and recording the past and writing about the past for, for millennia, but as an academic discipline that's taught in kind of universities and the ways in which, you know, we encounter history as sort of students, students and teachers, we, um, that's a fairly new thing, that's a sort of a 19th century um, development. But um, what's sort of happened in the last, I would say sort of in that kind of post 1950s, 60s period is that the, some of the fundamental tenets of history um, that, you know, we need to use kind of verifiable sources and, um, and whatnot were challenged by people who, you know, exactly for the reasons that we were talking about earlier, find that actually we don't, they don't have texts, texts and histories and um, documents which attest to their their experience of the past. And so um, what post-colonial studies and the kind of post-colonial approach refers to really is looking for other ways to access those experiences. So you've already kind of talked um, about oral history, for instance, and the kind of recording experiences of people who lived through um, those events, or at least who had some sort of you know, touching distance away from it, so maybe children or grandchildren or whatnot. Um, we also have sort of, there are just numerous ways, I think, you know, whether it's, as I, as I mentioned, kind of folk songs or, or literature or um, kind of visual culture or whatever, um, of kind of finding finding those voices. But it's not simply about sort of finding those voices and like adding them to the mix. You know, we already have lots of documents and stuff and then we just kind of throw the kind of the, the, the songs and the pictures and the oral history and we just kind of throw it all in a cauldron. But 
fundamentally post-colonial studies is about sort of questioning how knowledge is produced in the first place and how authority is produced. So we don't just necessarily kind of compile more and more different kinds of sources, but actually try and differentiate um, what sort of um, knowledge systems they're produced by, what kinds of authority they're projecting, um, what kinds of systems of power do they reveal, how do they sit in relation to kind of one another, um, become sort of fundamentally skeptical of received wisdom, of, um, of histories of the Report to be authoritative. So histories or documents that tell us that they're authoritative are sort of um, ones that are sort of challenged with these new kinds of sources. So um, it's, I suppose there's a sort of um, an element of kind of value judgment that then comes into it. You're not this sort of, as a historian, you're not an impartial aggregator of like information and documents and sources, but actually you're trying to unpick them and you're trying to question some of these fundamental things. If we're talking about imperialism, it is fundamental. Um, it's a sort of a fundamental turning point when we stop thinking about history as radiating outwards from Britain to the rest of the world. So British influence moves from the British Isles elsewhere or from London even elsewhere to actually thinking about history as a sort of multi-voiced, multi-party process where people people were able to contest power, they were able to record um, other forms of knowledge or they were able to kind of resist um, domination in particular ways so it's that sort of messiness i think that um that's really important but yeah as i say kind of not just not just sort of compiling more and more perspectives but actually trying to unpick unpick some of the um some of the sort of the systems of, of power and the structures of power i suppose that that operate between those those different perspectives yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good point that you made. And I think um, what I really agree on is um, how post-colonialism and post-colonial studies um, are really about um, questioning the current systems of knowledge that we work with and mm -hmm. attempting to introduce more diversity in, um, in the sources that we consult or, for instance, in the diversity of our reading lists, for instance. And I think this reminds me of the time um, in the 1919 course where we got to read more about um, histories, about the histories in Britain's colonies or in, in Britain's um, um, administrative regions, for instance, um, Huda Shirawi's The Harim Years, where she writes um, from the perspective of, of an Egyptian feminist during the Egyptian revolution in 1919, and how she shares about her perspective in organizing um, the rebellion and how women themselves are being um, champions of change as, as well in their society at that point in time. And so I think it's really important to be able to broaden our perspectives in that sense and actually make sense of history in a more uh, critical and in a more comprehensive manner. So I think this brings us almost to the end of our hour and we are extremely honoured to have Dr. Farida Zaman with us today. Um, just to let you know that you can always listen to this podcast recording afterwards um, if you would like to revisit some of the points that we've discussed or, or just listen, listen to it again because it, it has been such a great discussion. It will be uploaded on our website and social media platforms and we'll be having a few other uh, specialist speakers lined up in the coming weeks as well. So please stay tuned for that. Uh, Dr. Farida, do you have anything else to add or, or to end off the discussion? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. But 
I suppose if I, if I have to say one thing to end on, I would say be critical. Be critical of what's around you. Be, crit be critical of the history that you consume, always. Yes, a, a very wonderful quote to, to leave us with. Thank you, everyone, for attending today's event. And, yeah, we hope to see you at our next event. Thank you so much. Goodbye. <laughs>